light. So if you have a copy of God's Word, Acts chapter 6 will be our verses in examination this morning. Acts chapter 6. And if I had to put a title on this particular sermon, I would simply pose it as a question. That would be, who are you serving? Last week we asked a similar question, shall we serve God or shall we serve man? And today's question is, who are you serving? Are we serving self or are we serving Jesus? If there is one thing that I can exclaim with a bit of certainty, as I just sang that song, and that would be that our Lord's mercy is more. First Peter tells us in the letter that bears his name, First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great or abundant mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So his mercy is more. And I'm thankful for his mercy that was greater than my sin and his grace that was greater than my sin and that he saved me. And many in here today can say, thank you, Lord, for salvation and that your mercy outweighed my sin. I repented and come to Jesus as as Savior. Now, you know, today we celebrate our mothers and we certainly want to give thanks to God for them. And we give thanks for those who are not our mothers, who are not our moms. And this would be those who have walked beside of us through, the local, through this local assembly, people that we consider to be just like our mothers. And we are grateful for them, for those, as I mentioned uh, earlier at the beginning, for those who have lost their mothers uh, since last year. And we are praying for them because it's going to be difficult for them. And you know those folks, give them a call, give them a text, let them know that you're praying for them. And we pray that the Lord will give them peace and comfort. Today is going to be very difficult. And so we are praying for comfort from the Lord today. And many have lost their their mothers and they're not with us uh, today. And so we pray for you too. We pray for you during this during this time in your bulletin there is a a poem that i think will cover uh, every aspect if you will of, of mothers i think it covers it to a certain degree and it is called the wide spectrum of mothering and i want to read this in just a moment i'm just going to read this and um, if you have that in your bulletin read along with me and i'm going to start out at, at the uh, the first stanza there and that says to those who give birth this year to their first child we celebrate with you. We celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experience loss during miscarriage or failed adoptions or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointments, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things, and I mean that. Forgive us when we say foolish things, things that we don't mean or things that we don't understand. Think we don't mean to make this harder than it is. 
To those who foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who've had disappointments, heartaches, and distance with your children, we set with you. To those who've lost their mother this year, we grieve with you. To those who experience abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. Those who lived through driving tests, amen, medical tests and overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who have aborted children, we remember them and you on this day. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way you longed for it to be. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on this complex path. To those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you. To those who have emptier nests in the upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. To those who place children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expecting and surprising, we anticipate with you. So this Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart. And we have, a real, uh, we have real warriors in our midst. And we remember you this day. Amen and amen. We are thankful for our mothers. We are thankful for those who have nurtured us and cared for us. And I think that does sum it up pretty good. So let's do this. Let's jump back into the book of Acts, chapter, chapter 6. And we, we're going to talk about some of this in servitude, whether it is the widows or mothers and those type of, of folks in this uh, in this. A context who were downtrodden by life, and we'll talk about some of that today. And I ask you this question as we continue to dive into the book of Acts. The question is, who are you serving? Who are you serving? And if you are familiar with the book of Acts, particularly chapter 6, you know that this is the calling of the initial deacons in the early church. So with that being said, I want to ask you if you'll stand with me as we read these first seven verses and ask this question to yourself, and I've asked it to myself, who are you serving? Who are you serving? Verse 1 says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in a daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from amongst you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole uh, gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, or Timon, and uh, Parmenes. And Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they, uh, these, they sat before the apostles and they prayed and laid their, laid, their ha- laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Father, we ask you that you would bless the reading of your word as it is inspired. Father, we pray that it would speak to us today 
Hide me behind the cross of Christ, Father, and that your name may ex be exalted, Father, and your church would be edified and grow. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So now, here's the early church. The early church is growing at a startling rate, and some would say that this is a gospel explosion. They are grow at, a, at an alarming, startling rate in Jerusalem, and, it, and its residents therein, they, they're starting to take notice. If you remember way back when we started, and, and I laid an outline for the book out of the book of Acts, particularly in Acts chapter 1, was the outline and that everything that flows from this is flowing into the text. Number one, that through the whole book of Acts, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So this is kind of like the, the um, prerequisite for the rest of the outline. So here's the rest of the outline. That you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the first five chapters that we have already worked through, this is to the Jerusalem. This is the Jerusalem mission field. From chapters 6 through 12 is the mission to, to Judea and Samaria that is recorded. Then from chapters 12 through 29, it moves us to the ends of the earth. And, and since the church was growing at an amazing rate, there needed to be some structure. There needed to be some organization that is set in place to make sure that every need is met in Jesus' name. Now, one must remember that this is a movement of God and not an institution. We, as God's people in His church, we want a movement from God and not an institution. Institutions remind me of something that is dry, something that is static, something that is stagnated and is not moving. However, a movement of God is alive and it is moving. Even in this early church, in this early movement of God, there needed to be some organization. Remember, as this outline goes forward, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And that is important, even in this early movement. And you might say, somebody might say this, well, I just believe that you just have to rely on the Holy Spirit. And I say, amen. But I would be careful of using the word just. No one is denouncing the active role of the Holy Spirit. Another might say, we just need to be led by the Spirit of God. And sometimes that is said with the motive of laziness and not wanting to do the hard work of missions and ministry. For instance, I remember a man not long ago saying to me, he said, I don't read all those other books, I just preach. Meaning he doesn't read commentaries or or dictionaries of the Bible, he just, he just preaches as if to say that those other things are unspiritual, as to say that those things aren't spirit-led, as if what he is doing alone is more spiritual than it is the hard work and the hard study. In fact, I would go as far as to say that it is dishonoring God. It is a disservice. It's, it is dishonoring God to not put in the hard work of study. So the Bible tells us, so that we might study to show ourselves approved. Take the Bible. Use the Bible. Study the Bible. In short, there needed to be a hard, the hard work of organizing and strategizing a way 
as a, as a way to, to minister to God's people. God was adding to his church daily. And what is their answer? Well, the answer is waiters. You might say, waiters? Deacons. The word used for deacons implies waiter, somebody who waits tables. And so I want to stress one, one very important point as we ask this question, who or what are you serving? I want to stress to you today the importance of waiting tables and preaching the word. Of waiting tables and preaching the word. Now, in the realm of the church universal, don't be afraid if somebody uses this word Catholic in the sense of the church universal. God's church through Jesus Christ. No two ministries exist. No greater ministries exist than to, than to serve the Lord Jesus and his church and then to proclaim God's word. Those are the two greatest ministries is to preach, hear God's word, and then to serve the Lord Jesus and his church. And if we do that, we'll make disciples. If we do that, we'll make disciples. In doing so, people will hear the word, they'll hear the gospel, and you can be saved by hearing God's word. You serve people, you proclaim Jesus, the Holy Spirit draws, and people are saved. That's it. You don't need me to stand up here in some flashy way try to make the gospel more alluring and spectacular when it's already alluring and spectacular. You don't need me to come up here bringing props and everything else to try to make the gospel message more shiny and alluring to you. I love Adrian Rogers. He's probably one of my favorite preachers that I used to listen to quite a bit. Brother Adrian Rogers once said about preaching, he said, preachers need to stop trying to win popularity contests and just preach about Jesus. Amen? We don't need butts just warming the seat. We need people in the street making disciples. Now, he didn't say that. I added that to the end. <laughs> but that sounds like an Adrianism. In verse 1, he says, The days have come when the disciples were increasing in numbers, and a complaint by the Hellenists arose because the Hebrews... Uh, were um, kind of overlooking, neglecting the widows in the daily distribution of, of the food. It is already noted that people were hearing that Jesus is, is Messiah, and quite a great multitude has already come to know the Lord Jesus. Estimated around 10,000 or so have proclaimed to be followers of Jesus as Messiah, and they're proclaiming that he is, He's Messiah, He rose again. There is in Jewish life the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Jesus is the atonement. He is more than just the day. He is the atonement for sins and that they would be saved through His, through his work on the cross and His resurrection. And this is the salvation for the, the early church. Not, not only dealt with lifting away the sins, this atonement, but it involves life transformation. If there is anything that should, that should be hammered into our heart and to our head about serving in the church, it is that we desire life transformation. That we, be, that we look more like Jesus every step of our walk with Christ. Life transformation. And this becomes evident if you read the letters of the Apostle Paul and his latter letters of seeking the people of Jesus to be mature and stable in their faith. Now this ministry here of Jesus, ministry of Jesus through the apostles, we're at this very moment, here's, here's their, their mode of operation. Okay? They are to 
preach Jesus in Jerusalem. They are to take the proceeds, those who sold their possessions, Acts 245, 244-245, at the end of that chapter, take those proceeds and distribute to the poor, wash, rinse, and repeat. And that's what they did. They took the proceeds, they distributed to the poor, they preached Jesus, God added to his church. And most of the new followers of Jesus were what is called Hellenistic Jews. And you see that in the reading of verse 1. They were uh, Hellenist, Hellenistic Jews, which means that they spoke the Greek language, the common Greek language of the day, and yet they were Jewish. And this is a byproduct of Alex. Alexander the Great, the great uh, emperor and conqueror, as his goal was transforming the world into a totally Greek culture or Hellenization. This is the word that's used here, this Hellenization, this seeking of making the world a Greek culture, which included speaking the language. This episode is a good reminder for you and I in the local church. It is a good reminder, it's a good lesson to strive in seeking to shape the church as a New Testament church which is multicultural and is multi-ethical. It is a good example of seeking to be a New Testament church. Now, besides for Ananias and Sapphira, this is the first time that we start to see division in the early church. And, and, and by the way, we know that's not the last time and this word is used here, complaining. Now, what was the complaint? Seems to be plain and simple in the text. What was the complaining? Well, here's the complaining. It is the Hellenistic Jewish widows were being neglected, which this word means to look beyond, or in our English, to overlook, in the food distribution. These are widows who lost their husband, and their only means of sustenance was uh, those who would hand out food to them and give them food and those type of things. In fact, Rome had, a, Rome had a, a, a project as well to keep the peace of Rome. They had their own meals on wheels, so to speak. And so, here are these Jewish um, Hellenistic uh, people who spoke the Greek language, and for whatever reason, Whatever reason, they were overlooked in the distribution of the food. And, and by the way, this looking beyond, this uh, neglecting, being neglected, is what you might call being in the perfect tense, which means that it is something that was habitual. I mean, it was an ongoing thing. We don't know why that they were being overlooked or whatever reason that they were being overlooked in the distribution of the food. But it's what, what is important is what follows next. Now, here's the scheme again. The proceeds the apostles collected were used to supply the food to the people, such as this, the widows. And the word murmuring comes up, complaining. Murmuring is used, if you have a King James Bible, it says murmuring and complaint in your ESV and in the reading for today. This implies that there is a secret grumbling, a secret grumbling that is set to escalate to outright protest. Okay, now Luke, in a subtle way, Luke the evangelist, the author of Acts, in a subtle way, he is highlighting the danger of these secret murmurings, and we ought to take note too. The danger of these secret murmurings. And, and I don't have to, for you this morning, I don't have to give you an exhaustive explanation of the dangers of ill-placed, misappropriated uh, com um, complaints. 
I don't have to say to you, well, so-and-so complained about this. This is a complaint here. I will just simply say, as we always do, to insert Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, which are the verses on church discipline. And what does that tell us? That if we have an issue, if someone is in sin, or we think that something is slipping, that we go to that person. Go to the person one-on-one. Okay, so that's a footnote. Let's move on. The widows were complaining because they were not receiving their ration uh, of food. And and Luke doesn't give us a reason why this happened. Luke doesn't record an apologetic from the apostles saying, uh, we are sorry uh, and try to justify it. Uh, We're just overlooked. You know, um, we're sorry for, for, for this. He doesn't record an apologetic for this or defense, but... The simple response was this, how can we remedy this situation and minister to those who are downtrodden? How can we make it right? And this is a lesson for every one of us, uh, for those who served on the deacon board, for those who are serving in some ministry capacity, pastors, um, maybe those who might listening might have elders who are in their church, whatever it might be. Here's a lesson for us all today, that it is best not to try to explain or justify why we neglected to visit or to minister. Just make it right and do so in the name of Jesus. They don't need our justification. They just need us to make it right and do so in love. And you might think, well, why are they complaining about this? Show the love of Christ Show the love and move on. Here's the, uh, the apostles' response. Remember that this is the early church in need of organization and structure. And the twelve were summoned. They summoned all of the disciples and said, It's not right for us to not preach or give up preaching to serve tables. That's their response. Recognize that there's a deficiency here, so let's make a plan of action. As the apostles, they exercise their authority, their apostolic authority as those sent by Jesus And they are preemptive overseers. They're going to be overseers of a church not too long from here. And they need to formulate a plan. And by the way, every church needs to formulate a plan of ministry in their context. Know your context. Every church needs a plan of action for their context. The apostles wanted every disciple to be there. Did you notice that? The Bible says that they summoned all of the disciples And does it say that they all attended? Some might have not felt well that day. Some might not have wanted to get out of their pajamas that morning. Some might have wanted to sit in their recliner that morning or on the couch. Didn't feel like going to worship that day. And the Bible tells us that the apostles summoned and wanted everybody there. This is a all-in ministry. Serving the local church is all in. All your chips in. Now here is the apostles' response. They take ownership of this oversight. The world is full of ministers and pastors who do not take ownership of their faulty, bad calls in leadership. Take ownership. There are some things that I've failed on over the years, and I take ownership for those. Ministry endeavors that fell flat. I'll take ownership for that. Take ownership. One of the apostles, presumably Peter, said, we should not have to give up preaching to wait on tables. 
And he is not degrading the duty of serving by any means. He's not degrading it, but their, their calling to duty was to teach and preach the doctrine of Jesus. And the, and the way that this word is used for tables is almost, almost in a generic sense. We think of the table that we've laid out to eat our meals on. And, and yes, it can be used in that way. But it is also used in a generic sense. And here's what I mean by that. This same word that is used for tables as serving food and bread and rationing out bread is the same word that is used when Jesus goes into the money changers and turns over the tables in the temple. So what do we imply from this? Here's the implication. Any place where serving is required, we need a plan. We need a plan. Anywhere that the church is serving in some regard, we need a plan of action. The apostle's duty is first to preach the word and the gospel. Not that serving tables is less important, but the calling is to preach the word, be in, in, uh, instant in season and out of season. And then here's the plan. Pick your brothers from amongst you, seven men of good repute, good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will appoint to this duty. Now, here are the early qualifications for a deacon. Okay, these are scriptural qualifications. Number one here, according to Acts chapter 6, they are to be of good repute or of good standing with a good reputation. They are to be spirit-led and full of wisdom. In short, in short they must possess the signs that they have had a genuine encounter with Jesus and are regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, they must be born again. So the picking of the seven was meeting a need at that particular time. And if there is a significant number for seven, uh, Luke does not disclose this to us. And we'll see this in a moment. Seven deacons will be the, the Hellenists who will be, uh, or the Greek who, who will be able to communicate with these people who are servants. So they are also Jewish-speaking or uh, Greek-speaking Jewish folks who will be able to serve in this capacity. And one is listed as a Greek proselyte. The apostles took their calling serious. He said, we need to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of, of the word. And this command was set forward. Now comes the time to execute it. The church was called to call these men from amongst this which is really how ministry must be anyway. You know what? We talk about having a worship leader, and we need a worship leader. Um, you know, and we talk about that often. And, and we, we said, well, maybe we can, we can uh, put an ad or something. And, and I got thinking about that thing. And, and ministry, as we call people, ought to be people who are coming to this local church. There should be no reason whatsoever for us to have to reach outside the realm of our local church and call people to serve a role that our people should be serving in already. And so this is really how ministry and aspects of ministry should flow anyway. Paul will later lay out the qualifications of overseer and pastors and deacons. I don't want to list them for you here. 1 Timothy chapter 3 for the overseer, very quickly. This is a pastor, an overseer. They must be irreproachable. No grounds for accusations. That means you don't have any ammunition to lay an accusation on this overseer. No viable Accusations. They are to be a one-woman type of husband, not the type of quote-unquote overseer that would run around on their wife from bed to bed and marriage to marriage. A one-woman type of husband. 
They are to be stable in their thinking, sober-minded. They are to be self-controlled, not anger, uh, not, not angry all the time or ill-tempered. They are to be respected. They are to be hospitable. They are to be able to teach, not a drunkard. They are to be gentle, not a fighter, not a lover of money. And he must hold his household in order and must be experienced in the Word, not a novice. So for overseers, these things are listed. I'm not going to get into every one of those, but those are your qualifications for your overseer, a pastor, a preacher. For the deacons, they are to be dignified and serious. And by the way, that doesn't say that deacons can't joke and have fun one with another. And uh, our deacons, I think sometimes we like to laugh a little bit, and that's good. That's good for us. Good for our deacons. So they're dignified and not or serious, they're not double-tongued, they're not talking out both sides of their mouth, playing party against party. They're not addicted to wine, they're not a drunkard as listed with the overseers. They know that they are saved, they know that they are in Christ, they, they must be observed and found worthy to serve, and then their wives. See, the overseers, those that have qualifications for the wives, but the deacons do, because the wives of the deacons help them serve along the way. And so they are to be found, um, their wives must not be slanderers or gossipers, stable-minded as well and faithful. Now, these qualifications are clear in Scripture. And the reason that I mention those is because I found an oddity in the church today. There is an oddity in the, what I mentioned earlier, the church universal in some contexts. And here's the oddity. The oddity is this, is when church leadership makes exceptions because they cannot get anyone else to serve And so they look away from these qualifications. Do we recognize how much damage can be done if a person is serving as deacon that do not meet these scriptural qualifications? Now, I'm not talking about somebody being perfect or not perfect. I'm not talking about taking these as a checklist either. I would tell you this, I'm thankful for our deacons and you, you need to be thankful for your deacons as well. I look forward to serving the next term with the deacons who are coming on and those who might serve. And here is a challenge for you as a church. Pray for your deacons. Lift them up. Don't dog them out. Don't speak ill of them. Pray for them. Lift them up. These men have families that they must attend to as well. And they can't be just sitting by the phone daily waiting for someone to jump or to stump their toe and they, and they jump up and spring into action like, like super deacon. Pray for them, lift them up, support them as they support you and your family. Their main concern is this, okay? Our deacons, this is their main concern. And I didn't put it up there, but I'm going to try to speak slow enough to where you can... Write it down if you want to write it down. And here is what their first and main concern should be. How can we serve in a way that puts the gospel on display in the life of the church? I'll say that again. How can we, as a deacon board, how can we serve in a way that puts the gospel on display in the life of the church? Because in the end, this is not a popularity contest. 
The main question from our deacons should be, how can we serve you and Jesus today? And I think our deacons do that. It should be, how can we serve you and Jesus today? Not, let's vote on the business. Not, let's vote on the budget. It is, how can we serve you and Jesus today? Likewise, churches have harbored unbiblical expectations for their pastors. I can probably count numerous men who are in the ministry as pastors who are no longer in the ministry because their churches had unbiblical expectations for their pastors. Many rural churches today have tried to hire chaplains instead of pastors. Instead of asking their pastor to preach the truth and to oversee and uphold orthodoxy, they ask, are you visiting? This is why the deacons are called, in order to serve and to allow the pastors to preach and teach the gospel and to help shape disciples for the kingdom. Now, don't get me wrong. I think a pastor should visit, and they ought to. But this is not an either-or scenario. Just an example. Just an example. Think about it. And I know I might be oversimplifying the matter here, but think about it, okay? What would you rather hear? The pastor preached exactly what I needed to hear today. Or, I wish the pastor came by after I stumped my big toe. Again, I'm oversimplifying to make a point, but you get it. This is exactly, this is exactly what Peter was stating. He didn't, he didn't try to justify their oversight. He put a plan into action. And this is his plan of action. That we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I remember hearing a pastor one time tell me that a deacon came into his office, looked him in the eye. I know this man, and I know his heart for Jesus. And he said, this community, this church was a beacon and a light to this community, and you have snuffed that light out. And this deacon told this pastor, that, and I know his heart to serve Jesus, and that is the absolute, that is an absolute lie. He says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. After this command, the apostles called the seven out. The whole gathering there were pleased. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and uh, Parmenes, and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. So now Stephen, right off the bat, who meets the qualifications by being full of the Holy Spirit. He'll be the first Christian martyr. Then there's Philip, who will show up again in chapter 8, who will preach and share with the Ethiopian eunuch. And the other disciples, uh, who are not called out in Scripture, they'll, they do not show up again, but they show up in church history. They are called to minister to the Greek-speaking widows because they are obedient. Because they are obedient. And because now they have freed up the apostles to teach the doctrine of Jesus, listen to what it says. And the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. It's an amazing piece of information. Remarkable instance of the power of the gospel. According to historians, there were some 8,000 different priests in and out of near uh, Palestine. And it is probable that some of these were opposed to the gospel. And here's the power of the gospel, that it is adequately, adequate enough to humble 
even the most proud, the most arrogant, the most self-centered, the most envious priest to the foot of the cross. The power of the gospel. What an amazing thought that is. Just mere obedience. God will honor the work. We just need to be obedient to the word. God was growing his people numerically and spiritually. He was increasing. The number of people were proclaiming increased. People were receiving the gospel. It increased. Converts were being made. Some early, early pruning was being done. Ananias and Sapphira. Lessons to learn. Where disciples are being multiplied, there exists a healthy church. So in early June, we will set out the deacon ballads for our next term. Be in prayer for that process. Be in prayer for that and support the people that the Lord has placed in the church to serve. And I want you to listen close as I close and we move into these last portions for communion. Listen closely. Serving the Lord Jesus can be contagious. You ever got near somebody and they just serve the Lord with joy? And man, it made you want to serve Jesus too. Serving the Lord Jesus is, is contagious. Is contagious. I remember reading about a contagious sense of serving through the evangelist Dwight L. Moody. You may have heard of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was probably considered to be one of the greatest evangelists uh, in, in the modern era of the church from the 1800s on. And there was a large group of European pastors who came to one of D.L. Moody's, um, what they call the Northfield Baptist Conference in Massachusetts, and it was in the late 1800s. And Following the European custom, what they used to do as they would go into their rooms is they would set their shoes on the outside of the rooms to be cleaned at night by the servants. They would come by and would collect the, the shoes, and they would shine them up, put them back for the next day. And this was America, and so these Europeans uh, put their shoes on the outside, and America didn't have this custom. Walking outside the dormitories that night, D.L. Moody walked by the rooms, and he saw those um, shoes lined up, and he saw... He forgot about the custom. And so he began to try to gather some people to serve some of the students, ministerial students. And he said, listen, these shoes are on the outside of these doors, and this is their custom. We don't want to dishonor them, so let's, let's shine up these shoes and put them back. But excuse after excuse came up, and they were met with silence or some type of pious excuse. Uh, Brother D.L. Moody, I need to spend some time in Scripture tonight. I can't serve in this way, whatever the excuses are. Moody returned to the dorm. He collected all of the shoes. And here is, at the time, the world's most famous evangelist, he and, and Charles Spurgeon. Now, they weren't shining shoes together, but on the scale of evangelism, D.L. Moody was up there. And here he is in his room. He's shining up these shoes. And a friend walks in. Nobody knows this, but a friend walks in and sees him shining up these, these shoes. And nobody knows it but these two. When the foreigners woke up that morning... They looked outside their room, and there are their shoes, nice and shine. No one knew. No one knew what happened that night. Moody didn't tell anyone, but his friend who came in the room began to tell of Moody's servant, servant's heart. And during the rest of that conference, different men volunteered to shine the shoes in secret. Nobody knew. Perhaps this episode is an insight to what made D.L. Moody great in the realm of evangelism as what his servant heart revealed. And the basis of his greatness is that he had a servant's heart. I'll say this again in closing. Service is contagious. Serving the Lord Jesus is contagious. My challenge is give people 
a reason enough to catch the bug. Amen? Let's pray together.